0: Welcome to Approach the Bench, where we interview some of the leading jurists in the country about the work of judging and important issues within the judicial system. I'm Kara Bayliss, a features reporter here at Law360, and this month we're talking with Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Before he was nominated to the bench by President George W. Bush, Judge Sutton worked in private practice, taught constitutional law, served for three years as Ohio's Solicitor General, and began his career clerking for Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who called him, quote, "'One of the very best law clerks I ever had.'" Judge Sutton has made headlines over the years, authoring decisions in some major public policy appeals. In 2011, he upheld the Affordable Care Act. He also wrote for the majority in a 2014 case upholding some states' bans on same-sex marriage. And a few months ago, he revived a Tennessee law barring gender-affirming care for minors, though he wrote in his initial opinion that the court, quote, may be wrong and would have benefited from more time to consider the case. After an expedited appeal, the Sixth Circuit reaffirmed that ruling, with Judge Sutton writing that courts shouldn't intervene in novel constitutional issues that state governments are, quote, thoughtfully debating. And that points to Judge Sutton's pet issue, one he's written two books about, the sanctity of state constitutions. He believes lawyers, judges, and law schools all put too much emphasis on federal constitutional law while ignoring the fact that state constitutions often enshrine more rights, account for regional idiosyncrasies, and are far easier to amend. And he told us that local constitutions are growing even more relevant as the U.S. Supreme Court keeps kicking issues from abortion rights to redistricting down to the states. We asked Judge Sutton about why lawyers ignore state constitutions at their own peril, how he became a Supreme Court feeder judge, and the difficulties of deciding high-stakes appeals on a tight deadline. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. Thank you for joining us, Chief Judge Sutton. Your books, 51 Imperfect Solutions and Who Decides, criticize the practice of lockstepping, that is arbitrarily aligning state constitutional interpretation with the federal constitution and the US Supreme Court's understanding of it. You argue for more regional diversity in interpreting rights, and you lament the fact that law schools only teach federal constitutional law. And it's so interesting that you, as a federal appellate judge, wrote these books on state constitutional law. Uh, Given that role, what drew you to write these books?
1: One of my big career was becoming the Ohio Solicitor General in the mid-1990s. And as I tell my students, I could teach a semester-long class about state constitutional law based exclusively on cases I lost in the Ohio Supreme Court under the Ohio Constitution. So that was a wake-up call. And these were really big cases. These were uh, school funding cases Pilot school voucher cases, tort reform, criminal procedure. So, in the midst of that experience and after it, I found myself wondering why are we not paying more attention to this second opportunity? This, you know, you don't like a state or local law, a state or local criminal prosecution. Why wouldn't you seek relief under both the federal and state constitutions? I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me. You know, it's as if we American lawyers just understand one language, the language of federal constitutional law. And I guess it makes sense. If that's the main course being taught in law school in this area, why would we understand that state courts sometimes do it differently or have dialects, accents that emphasize certain things in their state constitutions over other things in the federal constitution? And so I I think what's going on is a lot of state courts – Those judges, you know, didn't have classes on state constitutional law, so they understand the federal doctrine first, which might incline them towards treating the state and federal constitutions as having the same meaning. But it's a chicken and egg problem because most state court judges would say, you know, we're referees, we're not players. And if the lawyers don't bring an independent state constitutional claim and they don't rely on the state language, the state history – why we really don't have authority to treat the state constitutional guarantee as separate. They've got to bring the arguments to us. Um, I think the thing that will surprise most American lawyers is if you were to read Article 1 or Article 2 of your state constitution, you'd see very quickly that the rights we know so well in the federal Bill of Rights, 14th Amendment, really have quite a bit of variation in the state constitutions. Uh, Quite often the state constitutions are more specific. Um, Most of them, for example, not only have a free exercise right, but a right to conscience. And so you start to see, wait, gosh, the language is different, different words, different meaning. In fact, I think the thing that most of us have forgotten is that the origin of our federal individual rights, our federal structural protections all came from the state constitutions. So it's really quite ironic that we lockstep with the federal constitution. If we did lockstepping, you'd think it would be the other way around, that federal judges would look to state courts and state constitutions because that was where all of these great guarantees originated. So I think we're making progress in informing, educating people about these two tracks. I think it's not going to take a lot more work because – you know, most American lawyers appreciate that we can have 51 different tax systems and I think I think people are going to it's going to dawn on people soon that the same is true with constitutions.
0: I wonder if your books may be even more relevant today than they were when they came out a few years ago given some of the recent US Supreme Court decisions uh the one that's Most obvious to me is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which, in doing away with the federal right to abortion, made it a state issue. It seemed everyone on both sides became very interested all of a sudden in what their state constitutions said. Do you agree, and are there other ways state constitutions are now in the spotlight?
1: It's a great point. Just think of these two data points that in June of 2022— the country hears that the court has overruled Roe and Casey. That's a striking decision because most people are aware of that issue. It's it's the rare American over, you know, 14 or 15 that isn't aware of that precedent or wasn't aware of that precedent, wasn't, a, you know, attuned to what what it meant when Dobbs came out. And if you remember, about 2 months later, the people of Kansas had an opportunity to vote on whether they should overrule this decision on their Kansas Supreme Court that had protected a right to abortion. And um, sure enough, the people of Kansas did not overrule it. And I think that was this educational moment. On the one hand, you have Dobbs overruling Roe and Casey. At the same time, you suddenly see a state that, from a distance, a lot of people would call a more conservative state, saying, hey, wait, they have a right to deal with this however they wish. And so I think that kind of put on the table the all these other options. And it's, it's so striking how many options there are. It's not just state constitutions interpreted by state courts. State legislatures can pass laws in the area. Of course, the people can take matters into their own hand and amend the constitution of their state. A lot of states have done that or are doing it. In fact, you might be interested to know that before Dobbs, there wasn't a single state constitution that's explicitly protected a right to abortion. A few protected a right to privacy, but none mentioned the word abortion. Last fall, within you know five months of the Dobbs decision, three states put it in their state constitution. I think it's Vermont, Michigan, and California, if I'm remembering correctly. And so I think you're quite right that this has been an educational moment. Um, in both my books, 51 and Perfect Solutions and Who Decides, I do tell stories where going to the states and state courts has sometimes been better for a constitutional right than getting relief at the US Supreme Court. That sometimes the best way to protect the right is actually using local guarantees whether it's democratically enacted or state court state constitutional uh, provisions and you know so there's free exercise stories, property rights, school funding stories where The losers at the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately did quite well for themselves at the local level. In fact, some might argue even better than they could have done at the U.S. Supreme Court. But I quite agree with you that Dobbs raised the salience of state constitutions specifically and states more generally as a source of rights protection.
0: Are there other rights that you think might become enshrined in state constitutions in response to the Supreme Court, either reversing past precedent or just not deciding to take up an issue?
1: There are quite a few, but I'll tell you the other one that I think also really educated Americans on the role of states in protecting their interests was the Rucho decision. So that's a case, I think, from about 2019, very close case, 5 4 And the majority actually overrules a decision from 1986 where the court had said that challenges to political gerrymandering or extreme partisan gerrymandering were cognizable under the 14th Amendment. And in Rucho, the court said, no, that's a political question. We, the U.S. Supreme Court, can't see a principled neutral way to assess the validity or not of these state gerrymandered districts. And when it comes to um, that particular issue, extreme partisan gerrymandering, the states, once again, have been really active. So you've had constitutional amendments at the state level, quite a few state Supreme Court decisions, state legislation, the creation of independent commissions to draw new districts. And so there's just been a lot of activity. So I think that's another good example. U.S. Supreme Court puts up a big red stop sign, says – U.S. Constitution does not speak to this issue. You're going to have to sort it out through the democratic process locally or state courts and state constitutions. And in fact, a ton has happened. Um, but I could I could tell you stories. Believe it or not, some people don't trust state court judges to be good protectors of liberty in criminal cases. Ninety percent of state court judges are elected. And I think that makes some people nervous about their capacity to independently protect the liberty interests of individuals accused of crime. And I could tell you quite a few stories where the U.S. Supreme Court denied relief to criminal defendants and state courts filled the gap. Um, So I think that shows state courts can be trusted, uh, certainly as much as federal judges, to look carefully at their state constitutions, not be afraid independently to construe them, And in the end, provide um, constitutional protections, which sometimes are wanting at the federal level.
0: You mentioned before that when you were an attorney, you missed some opportunities to invoke state constitutions. And in your book, you use this basketball analogy where you ask, why wouldn't a good lawyer take both free throws? That is, file claims under both the state and federal constitutions. I know you can't discuss any particular case that's been before you, but in general, as a Sixth Circuit judge, have you seen examples of this where the record indicates that a litigant didn't use all of their free throws?
1: Just to make sure everyone gets the analogy and appreciates how simple it is, you know, in (laughs) basketball, you have a two-shot free throw. So you're in the act of shooting, you're fouled, you missed the shot and you get two shots uh, no matter what happens to the first one. Well, I can just tell you in American basketball, no one down to third grade CYO basketball ever got a two shot foul, missed the first shot and didn't take the second one. I mean, it's just (laughs) simple math. Like, why wouldn't you try? And I do not think I'm exaggerating when I say in every state in the country, every day of the business week, you have lawyers only taking one shot and it's only the federal shot. I think this goes back partly to where we started, which is that most law schools do not have a class on state constitutional law, so their graduates in this sense are half equipped to protect their clients' interests. They just know the federal shot, and if you don't know about the state shot, you're not going to take it. So that's, that's one problem. Uh, the second problem we kind of alluded to earlier, they bring the state shot, but they don't really independently develop it by looking at the language of the state guarantee, its history the culture of that state. Um, What's so fun about state constitutional law is you can ask state courts to do something federal judges or the U.S. Supreme Court can't do. I'm not allowed as a federal judge to customize the meaning of the prohibition on unreasonable search and seizures just for the experiences of Ohioans or Midwesterners or those in rural areas versus urban areas. The U.S. Supreme Court is construing a document for all 330 million of us, 51 jurisdictions. But the Ohio Supreme Court can construe a guarantee in a way that customizes it to local conditions, local traditions, local values. So that's a really exciting opportunity both for the lawyer and the state court. Um, We don't get the two-shot opportunities that often In federal court, uh, I think usually when people bring this two-shot opportunity, they usually want to go to state court and bring the federal state claim there. Um, In federal court, you run into sovereign immunity issues if you're suing the state or state officials. Now, if it's a case involving the city, however, we could get a state claim. But in 20 years, I think I've had three or four state constitutional law cases. And in every one of them, that state was a lockstepping state. So... My ship didn't come in. Let's put it this way. I I think I would have written a very long opinion had I had the chance. Uh, But I think the state courts are a very fertile area for it. And I think most state court judges have been saying to me they have noticed an uptick in these claims and the briefing of these claims and an awareness that this is a second way to help their client. There's a case called Utah versus Strieff, S-T-R-I-E-F-F. And it was a Criminal prosecution, drug distribution, under state law. So they're in state court to start. And the lawyer raised solely the Fourth Amendment search and seizure claim. They actually won. Streif actually won in the Utah Supreme Court, 5-0. But then because it was a federal claim, it could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they reversed 8-1. So Streif went to jail and... I think it's quite possible that if he brought a Utah constitutional claim, he would have been able to get at least three of those five votes at the state Supreme Court and not gone to jail. I mean, think of those stakes. The difference between going to jail and not going to jail might turn on bringing the second shot.
0: Does it come up much in civil
1: cases or it's really more of a criminal issue? Oh, yeah, definitely, because civil cases are all the constitutional challenges. So free speech, free exercise, equal protection, due process. those are usually civil cases, not criminal. I'd say it's, I'd say it's equal opportunity, 50/50. Um, well you know one other point to just illustrate something that I think um, I, I don't know, maybe you don't agree with me on this, but I think we're a little obsessed with federal courts and the federal Constitution. I think it would surprise most Americans. How many more cases are filed in the state courts than in the federal courts? So this is, a, I think, a fairly conservative comparison. State court filings in the whole country was about 50 million. The counterpart figure in the federal courts was 400,000. And that's an apples to apples comparison. And all we want to talk about are the 400,000 cases in federal court where You know, if the rule of law doesn't exist in state court, well, I would say it doesn't exist. I mean, that's 50 million cases. So I sometimes think we're losing focus of where we ought to put a little more priority. It's really important for those 50 million cases to be handled fairly.
0: Not to focus on (laughs) more federal issues, but you've been identified as a Supreme Court feeder judge uh, and you've fed law clerks to every sitting member of the court, except for Justice Jackson, who's only been there for one term. And I think that you did have someone go to her predecessor, Justice Breyer. So what do you look for in law students who you hire? And what do you try to teach them during their clerkships? I think um, the thing
1: I really enjoy and have had the good fortune of just having so many clerks that have this attribute is um, people that enjoy law. In other words, enjoy trying to sort out the right answer, aren't intimidated by a difficult puzzle to be solved. In fact, it creates enthusiasm in them and passion. You know, Law fundamentally is a service profession. We're trying to, as judges, sort out the right answer between two parties. When you're in practice, you're standing in the shoes of someone else, seeing the world through their eyes and fixing their problems. And I think I've been fortunate to have clerks that really care about that client, at least when they're working for me, that client being the rule of law and really working hard at finding a good answer to, you know, just, it just seems we always have something that comes up. I got to tell you, in 20 years, I see no end in sight to difficult problems of federal law anyway. And, you know, I, I also feel like I've been really fortunate to have clerks that not only enjoy trying to sort these things out and be neutral and honest about it, but are also good hearted and kind people, which I'm sure Supreme court Justices enjoy having people that are team players. And you, you want someone who has smarts, but that's not always um, enough by itself in a small chambers. I mean, if you've got six people working together, it's nice to have people with character and and good human qualities. And yeah, I think, I think uh, being a law clerk's a great idea. I mean, not too many, people on their deathbed said, if only I'd had one more year at the firm, my life would have been complete. So <laughs> I think clerking's a great idea. And it can be a really great way to grow as a young lawyer. It certainly worked out for me. I, I really, my writing and, and kind of understanding of federal law really developed quite a bit during my clerking.
0: Are there any lessons that you learned as a clerk that you try to impart to your clerks?
1: work hard but be humble uh you know you you know there's laws difficult i don't know what to say i mean at 62 i still find it incredibly difficult and i don't have to force myself to be humble anymore because i just have so many (laughs) experiences that have made it impossible for me not to be humble i do think sometimes when you're young and you don't have a lot of experiences including experiences of failure you sometimes um don't appreciate the need to be humble about dealing with difficult uh, problems. And I think that is a virtue. And there are not a lot of virtues of aging, but that is a virtue of aging. It does make you a little more humble about the next case when you're, you might be inclined to think there's an easy, very clear answer for all time. And all it takes is a few years of watching that decision unfold before you realize, Ooh, I didn't think of that. Or, Ooh, I didn't think of that other possibility. So that can be a lesson in itself, which I think is impossible for the clerk to know. It's, it's, it's a great feature of the judge-clerk interaction. Once the judge has been around for a while, they they develop that humility, and the clerk has this enthusiasm of, hey, let's just fix this. And that enthusiasm is really valuable. Idealism, super valuable. And I, I think it makes for a great partnership in terms of decision-making.
0: Speaking of humility, at the end of a recent opinion on an emergency motion, you wrote, and I'm quoting here, we may be wrong. It may be that the one week we have had to resolve this motion does not suffice to see our own mistakes. Now, circuit court judges are often called on to quickly adjudicate tough legal questions, but that particular sentence made me wonder about what it's like for a panel to be on such a tight deadline. Can you speak generally about how the process for deciding emergency motions differs from other appeals?
1: Yeah, I, I'm afraid it's, um, it's an unavoidable feature of any court system that you're going to have some emergencies. Uh, so as examples, um, capital cases. So an execution date, the filings have to be brought before the date and they have to be decided before the date. Sometimes immigration cases have that where someone's about to be deported and they have a claim and we need to decide it or it's best decided before they're forced to leave. And sometimes uh, constitutional disputes, um, the state legislation, you know, whatever it is that democracy has produced, sometimes has an immediate effect on people that, you know, they think is unfair to have to deal with um So I don't I don't know a way around emergency cases. I wish there were a way around them. I don't care for them because sometimes they implicate issues that deserve more than a few days or more than a week. Um, One thing that U.S. Supreme Court has done is something I think the lower courts are learning to do. And we've kind of followed their example. What you can do is you can make a quick decision about what the status quo ought to be very hard like just not sure what it should be but you make that choice but then you limit the suffering of the losing side by expediting the rest of the case i happen to, I, that strikes me as a pretty good idea because sometimes you know maybe you could decide in 3 months what um normally would take a year 18 months And if you do it in three months, the loser at the status quo, the emergency stay thing, doesn't lose that much because they only have to wait three months. And I I feel like that's pretty healthy. That seems to balance the, um, gee, we're at real risk of error, of deciding too quickly. Like, can you really know everything in, in a week or three days? At the same time, you're not forcing the loser of that stay motion to suffer through the status quo for. Two years. Um, the the only other thing, though, I would add is at least at the U.S. Supreme Court level, I think they sometimes benefit by more inputs. In other words, one nice thing about sitting at the top of the system is they have fifty state courts that could issue rulings, thirteen federal courts of appeals that could issue rulings, obviously lots of trial judges that could issue rulings, and sometimes that really sharpens the issues and makes improves the odds that they make a good decision. So I think, I do think time is your friend up to a point. Like I'm after a few months, I'm I'm pretty confident I'm not doing any better. (laughs) I will be spinning my wheels, but I'm sure a few months is better than a week. And, you know, I, I think I was saying earlier, if it's true, when you're young as a judge, you issue a decision and then you, you watch how it plays out over a few years. And that can be humbling as you realize, you hadn't thought of all the dynamics. I think the same thing is true in a single case, you know, full briefing, full argument, full time to converse with your colleagues. I don't know, just I think it lowers the risk of error. And and sometimes I think that's our biggest job. Not not so much being so sure we're getting it right, but lowering the risks of error.
0: This might be a really obvious question, but what would you do in those three months that you just can't do in a week?
1: Well, I, I will tell you one danger of being a judge for 20 years. You start pulling the trigger too quickly. You're like, oh, I've seen this one before. and um, But a week is not enough time to read the relevant decisions. The week is not enough time to write a really thoughtful decision. I mean, the harder the case, the more important it is to really take on the best arguments that the losing side is making. I think most judges would agree that the opinion writing process is really valuable because it disciplines us to make sure we're not acting just on policy preferences or worse biases, that we're, we're actually doing something in a reason neutral way. And I think most judges would also agree that the main audience is the losing party And I just think a week is not enough time to really make sure you've done that. In a case that has a lot of relevant precedents, you're just not gonna be able to read them all in a week. So that's, that's a little damaging. So, um, a case that's briefed only, you only have a week to decide also doesn't allow for much participation by friend of the court amicus. And sometimes those are really valuable. So, um, As I sit here and think about it, it's not just the judge's decision-making, it's actually the lawyer's contributions. And think of a case where the lawyers have state and federal issues. How are they going to independently brief both of them? I think the lawyers will tell you it's not their A-plus game when they're doing that. And I think the judges will tell you it's not their A-plus game when they're deciding so quickly. And so... But you have to balance it because um, quite often these emergency motions really present very serious liberty equality issues for the the claimants. And that's why it's important to do something. But yeah, as you can tell as I'm floundering around on this, it's not easy.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's wild to me. It it totally makes sense, but it's it's really eye-opening that you don't have the time to read all the relevant cases as you're making these big decisions. I mean- how do you decide which ones you'll make time for?
1: You minimize the damage by doing a quick status quo decision and then expedite everything else. I think that really helps. But I mean, I another thing that happens in a seven-day emergency ruling is you don't get oral argument. So there's no dialogue between the judges and the lawyers. And if you expedite the briefing, you can expedite argument, and then you can actually have a dialogue, which I got to tell you is a Sometimes I'm confident about what I should do, but I can't tell you how many times I think I know the answer before argument. And then during argument, the lawyers make me appreciate that I'm missing something or there's a nuance that I really have to come to grips with. So arguments are really valuable and you can't do oral argument in an emergency setting by itself. You can in an expedited setting. And that's even more true with a multi-member court because now you want to add if it's at my court, it's three voices. It's the U.S. Supreme Court, it's nine voices. State Supreme Courts could be nine, seven, five. That's a lot of voices to consider and have an exchange about. Um, and that that also improves decision making.
0: Chief Judge Sutton, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Kara, for inviting me. Thank you for raising the salience of state courts and state constitutions. I'm hoping some lawyers will listen to this and think about their clients after it's over and think about ways they can improve the odds by a hundred percent of winning. <laughs> Take the second shot.
0: We'd like to thank our guest, Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton. Our episode was produced by Stephen Trader. Our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Law360's own Kelly Marcano. Thank you for listening.